one of the topics that we have been covering a lot in the last 12 months or so on our show has been the funding of the IRS. Is the IRS underfunded? Well, that's a great question. I'll be glad to answer the next you one. You could ask him, do you want to raise? You know, <laughs> you can ask it that way. Well, look, no, it's no secret that IRS has had a lot of attrition in the last several years, and both Darren, myself, and other division heads are really working hard to hire more people because what was a very strong, robust workforce that could handle all the paper coming in annually is now shrunk significantly. Welcome to a special episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And we are recording live at Accounting Web Live in San Diego, joined today by two special guests. We have Darren Guillot, Deputy Commissioner of what is your department? Small Business Self-Employed, Collection and Operations Support. All right. And we also have James Robnett, Deputy Chief of Criminal Investigations. Yes, sir. Criminal Investigations. That's the gun-carrying arm of the IRS? Yes, sir. You, people that are listening, hopefully, they're not of an age where they don't remember the Al Capone story. So where those guys brought forward 100 years later. And still still carrying on that grand tradition of, of catching a lot of criminals yep. via their evasion of the tax code. Yeah, the work we do, and, and we'll talk about it with, with Darren and I, will talk. Um, the work we do is not towards people who just make a simple mistake. These are people, uh, bad behavior over a period of time and uh, just taking advantage of the treasury and uh, taxpayers' funds. So, Darren, James, what brings you here to San Diego? Darren, how about we start with well, you? Well, we were invited to speak about uh, how taxpayers, whether they're businesses or individuals with a past due tax debt, can get caught up and become compliant again. And that ranges everywhere from, as Jim just pointed out, people who make innocent mistakes and how they can help themselves or we can help them if they can't, to those that willfully are trying to avoid making payments and some of the civil enforcement options that we have at the IRS to get them into compliance, but even civil investigations that result in referrals over to the criminal investigation division, to Jim shop, so that they can further investigate for criminal badges of fraud. And how about you? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, take up the, the tail end of that conversation here to speak with accountants and the bookkeepers here and representatives around how to defend, um, how to the clients that, that come to them that might have be might be involved in some sort of scam scheme. Maybe they're a victim, perhaps. Maybe they're a perpetrator. So Eric Green and I will talk later today around how he can represent them. I'll talk about what we see in the field today, the kind of bad behavior that we've seen uh, where taxpayers are victimized, the treasury's victimized. And so we'll have a good conversation today for about an hour around that. And then how many years, Darren, were you at the uh, IRS so far? In August, it will be 35 years. 35 years in June? Uh, you got me beat by a year, Darren, 34. Okay, so you guys have seen a lot. Yes. These waves and, and growth and the deconstruction, for lack of a better word, of the IRS the last two decades. And I think, Jim, you said you have about 3,000 employees under you, and Darren, you said about 12,000. So it's 15,000 of about 80,000 for the whole IRS? Correct, yeah, for context, that general number. So eight. so I know, and in, in you, both of you have like, I could talk to you for two hours about your slices. So can we just take it one level higher up of kind of where you fit into the bigger IRS picture? Because right for everybody else, the IRS is like either a phone number or it's just, it's, the, you or, don't want to notice this in the mail. IRS, yeah. So the, the collection function of the Internal Revenue Service has been around since there's been an Internal Revenue Service. And collection isn't only about collecting taxes, only about collecting money. Collecting is collecting anything that's due and owed to the Treasury that we haven't received, whether it's a tax return or it's funds. 
whether it's a corporation, large or small, or a partnership or a sole proprietorship, or if it's individuals. So the word collection sometimes misleads people in thinking it's only about tax collection. It's about securing delinquent tax returns. And a lot of what we do in the field in collection involves businesses, and it's across the entire IRS. While we are housed within the Small Business Self-Employed Division, collection handles past due balances owed by the largest corporations to the smallest businesses, uh, individuals who are wage earners uh, from wage and investment, or even government entities or tax-exempt organizations that haven't filed a return or owe taxes. The collection function of the Internal Revenue Service works all of those cases. And is that kind of its primary function to some extent? It's collecting of funds. That's correct. So, um, you know, most taxpayers voluntarily file and pay what they owe. We don't have to get involved. We simply process that. IRS brings in 96% of all the revenue that funds the United States. If you don't pay when you file your tax return, you'll get a balance due notice. And the vast majority of taxpayers who get those notices pay when they get that notice or maybe a subsequent notice. And that's the only interaction they have with the Internal Revenue Service. But as we don't hear from taxpayers or they don't become compliant, whether it's a business or an individual, those notices get sequentially more serious in tone and warrant of enforcement action if they don't become compliant. And many taxpayers become compliant at that point or those notices lead to a telephone conversation with our automated collection system or ACS. It's one of the most efficient tax collection operations on the planet in history. It truly, truly is. The numbers are staggering at how efficient they are at the cost of that operation for how much revenue they bring in. But if that fails, we have a field function. Again, that's been around for over a century. We have revenue officers who are civil enforcement officers, and they are the people, aside from special agents, who tend to make unannounced visits to a taxpayer's business or home out in the field. Uh, they carry two forms of identification. I know there's concerns about people who impersonate IRS personnel. So we've got a robust system in place so that taxpayers and local law enforcement can be sure that our citizens are dealing with the real IRS when we come out there. But revenue officers continue to do what they do out in the field. There are just over 2,000 of them. They work cases coast to coast, and we even have international revenue officers. The most difficult cases that involve investigations to locate assets that may be put beyond our reach or hard to reach, revenue officers work those cases. If assets need to be seized and liquidated, to apply toward a tax liability, they work those cases. If a taxpayer is establishing nominees and alter egos, the schemes that Jim alluded to, revenue officers are frequently among the first to detect those schemes and build a case and document those. We can take civil action, revenue officers are trained and proceeding with legal action with the help of our counsel at Treasury and the Department of Justice and pursuing suits, for instance, to set aside fraudulent transfers and things of that nature often we'll refer those cases to criminal investigation if we believe the behavior is bad enough and criminal investigation agrees they'll accept it as a criminal case yeah so our side on the criminal side and just to go back a little bit you know our agents are accountants or finance majors in college you know and they master's degree is really smart um, takes a certain amount of uh, education to qualify for the job and then once you interview perhaps and you want to do this job you are sent away for six months for law enforcement training so our agents are trained no different than any other treasury law enforcement agency that you might your secret service atf those folks that used to be in treasury now are sort of in homeland so our agent makeup is similar but vastly different in terms of how we approach things and the vast majority of people listening to this will probably not get a visit from us 
or our agents, unless maybe they're a witness, right? Maybe they've got a document that we need to secure on behalf of an investigation that we think will go towards evidence in a criminal prosecution. And let me be really clear what we do is the cases that we take on, the leads that we investigate quietly at first to make sure they're viable and we don't hurt anyone's reputation, right? We just, we don't just go out this. So if I very thoughtful Blake here, you would keep it under the covers. Well, like, so, so, let's say, yeah, Blake, I mean, I'm looking at Blake and I'm thinking, you know, he's got this cloud accounting podcast shirt on. I don't know how trustworthy he is because I haven't heard this podcast before, but later I learned that it's reputable, right? So that goes into the conversation around whatever your allegation is against Blake. Now, maybe he's doing something else nefarious, like laundering money, right? Maybe moving money offshore to a Swiss bank account or some other account where it's under another name, perhaps your name, David. And I don't know, it could be back and forth. And often some people say, how, well, how do your cases come to you? You know, how do you get leads? Well, we get leads, fraud referrals from collection, like Darren said, when, when his agents are out there uh, and they see a matter that, wow, it's not just tax avoidance, right? Tax evasion is very different. And so he may refer it to us with a certain amount of information. And then we look at it quietly to say, hey, there, are there some other things that we have, more information that we have that we can say, you know, this is not just an accident. This is a three to five year pattern of bad behavior, shifting money offshore, nominee names, and so on and so forth. And then we look at those allegations. And in, in the end, we build a case. We build a case with evidence, paper, people, witnesses. We don't have to rely on what we think, you know, might have happened because when we build that evidence, we meet all the um, elements of the crime, tax evasion, sometimes money laundering, sometimes Bank Secrecy Act violations where people deposit less than an amount so the bank doesn't report them. All that put together, you know, will violate a certain criminal statute. We know the motivation behind it, but the thing that makes us special, and, and Darren's folks as well, is that like you and the people listening, the accountants, right? We follow the money. And then we don't just follow it to a number. We say, why? Why did they do that? And that why is often a conversation with a witness. Maybe it's a former business owner, maybe someone who told on them. And it's a really cool story because truth is better than fiction in our casework. And our agents do a ton of great work. They do it both domestically, internationally. Tax evasion is our mission. No one else does it. No other alphabet law enforcement agency that you can think of, no one has the authority to look at your tax information except IRS employees, Darren's folks, and us. So when you see on TV, you know, these uh, law enforcement stories that have to be done in an hour, right? The crime has to be solved in an hour. And they say, well, we just checked their tax return, right? Eh, no, that didn't happen, but it makes a good story. That's really important, I think, for your folks to know is that their information is safe with us. We are careful with it. We're thoughtful about investigations we, we begin. And when you see or hear about a criminal prosecution that's conducted by our division, the fact that we have a 90%, sometimes overall 92% prosecution success rate, is the highest in federal law enforcement. We, again, we want to rely on what witness saw. A lot of witnesses that may change their story. Documents plus story equals, you know, something perhaps a criminal violation, or perhaps we back off and say, you know what, this is just a series of mistakes. We can understand they were relying on somebody for this advice, and that happens. And then, you know, we bring it back over to the civil division, and they'll and Darren and his folks will work as thoughtfully as they can to, to help collect that money. So that's sort of a little bit about our background and what we do. One of the topics that we have been covering a lot in the last 12 months or so on our show has been the funding of the IRS. Is the IRS underfunded? Well, that's a great question. I'll be glad to answer the next you one. You could ask him, do you want to raise? You know, <laughs> you can ask it that way. Well, look, listen, no, it's no secret that IRS has had a lot of attrition in the last several years, and both Darren, myself, and other division heads are really working hard to hire more people because what was a very strong, robust workforce that could handle all the paper coming in annually is now shrunk significantly. 
So has the headcount in criminal investigations shrunk over the last 10 years? It, it has. Now, we're building back up, and I'll say that we've been hiring probably for the last three years because we had a treated so badly, you know, almost treated down to the bone that, that we had some room in our budget to begin to hire pre-COVID, which now it's a real challenge. So we have about 3,000 people worldwide. Of that, 2,000 are agents, and the other 1,000 are administrative help, uh, investigative help. Just this year, we finally in our hiring efforts, surpassed our attrition. You know, we, we hired 250, but we attrited retirements, you know, 200 or so came out. And with us, it's a little, it's difficult, right? Because we hire a bunch of folks and then we have to send them to law enforcement school. This six months, it's, it's quite a learning curve, but it's important that, that they go there for three months, they learn the law, learn probable cause, and all those things that you have to know with all the other agencies before you can move forward in court matter. And then you go to your own school and they go to our school to learn how to build cases around tax matters. Uh, around money laundering matters and bank secrecy. So yeah, we are hiring and we're not where we want to be. We want to make sure that we our mission to police and tax evasion is solid, right? We want to be able to cover that responsibility on behalf of taxpayers who pay us. And, and we work really hard to do that. We have today more than yesterday. While we might not have as many people, we do have the power of, of data. You know, we could talk here for days and we won't. I know you've got a little amount of time, but we do our best to work really smart. While we make data-driven decisions, we also have subject matter experts in, in all our divisions. But Darren's, our division, folks that have been around for, like we have, say, hey, that data is showing us this, and I think this could be happening in that ta kind of tax return. So we're trying to be as efficient as we can for the taxpayer's dollar and, and overcome some of that attrition that's happened in, in the past uh, several years. And then right on the cliff, right, Darren, like, like because people are... Doesn't the IRS have some ridiculous high percentage of people that are eligible for retirement, right? And so the next five to 10 years, like there's this huge clip. And then I think about your org, you have 12,000 employees. And if 20, you're going to have to hire thousands of people and right. replace them. And it's like, how are you comprehending that task? Are you like, don't worry, I'm going to be one of the ones going. It's somebody else's problem. Like, like where's your head wrapping around that or how you think you're going to try to solve that? Well, we're, we're working on it now, David. Thanks for asking that. So I guess the best way I can respond is to explain what we're doing right now. So... We lost about 50% of our revenue officers since 2009. And just like Jim mentioned, we've been hiring two in the past three years. But as you hire people, you're also losing some of those very seasoned, experienced people you just mentioned. So we need to keep an eye on the ratio. So we need a certain number of senior, experienced revenue officers. I'll use one profession that's important that I mentioned earlier. We need a certain number of them to be the on-the-job instructors. We need a certain number of them to be the classroom instructors. We need a certain number of them to be the managers of the new groups created by these hundreds or thousands of employees we hire. So whenever we look at a number we're about to hire, pick a number, 500, 1,000, 5,000, you have to calculate how many of your most seasoned, experienced investigators and forces will, are you willing to pull offline, can you afford to pull offline to teach them, to train them? Because you want them to feel like they're part of an important organization. They are. I mean, Jim's special agents, it's no secret. They're the top financial investigators in the world. Everybody knows that. Our revenue officers are incredibly efficient. The money that they bring in, the assets they can find domestically and overseas with the civil investigative work they do, using systems and even going through courthouse documents and following property transfers and things is just remarkable. You need someone who's been on the job for five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years to train that new person who just walked into the IRS. Just do the math. If you're gonna have to pull two or 300 of 2,000 revenue officers offline to hire 
a thousand. What does that do to your ability to work the cases they would have otherwise addressed? So I've got more work than I have revenue officers to assign it to, but we have to grow at some point. I mean, it goes to the same. So it might even have to get a little worse, but you fall behind even more until you get this. It's the math, right. Fly yeah. spinning the other way. You know, what Darren's talking about is the math behind this is part formula and part common sense, right? You can't take all your senior people off the train while there's important cases out there that really demand attention because what Darren and I do, although we're in different shops, you know, we are along with the audit side, you know, we are sort of, we're the compliance side of IRS. You know, there's IRS is a service organization. We, we help as many people as we can. We help victims. Uh, we help people get compliant, but make no bones about it with, without a compliance function, someone who really makes sure that, that people pay the proper amount, that they have a way to pay like Darren's offering that in our case where maybe they're they're just evading their taxes for years and years, and I could give you cases and cases. We're the compliance function. And without that, without a compliance function, there's a certain number of people out there, not, not a lot, because like Darren said, we have a really high compliance, voluntary compliance rate, unlike anywhere else in the world. That's everybody knows gyms out there. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I mean, on, what it is, it is, you know, um, we, but there's a, just like a bank, for example, you know, you have a bank People that offers. People are compliant and honest. Sure they are. Country. They want to I mean, be, right? They start, yeah. People want to know what their obligation is and they do that. And they, they really want to know how to, how to pay. What did you say the number was of voluntary compliance or was well, it? In terms of people? Or um, it was a percentage or a, I forget what it oh. was. They're not thinking about eight, just between 83 and 84%. Okay, so that means that 16 to 17% of Americans or taxpayers are not compliant, right? Yeah, all right, but for Jim's purposes, yeah. are they not compliant on purpose? Uh, right, yeah. well, and, but in general, the, the whole piece yeah. like you're describing, yeah, that would make up our divisions, right? Okay. Responsibility. So of that 16, 17% that aren't compliant, how many are avoiders? versus evaders? That's a good question. And I'm, I'm glad you're asking that because David was just pointing to you actually um, to make sure you're, he's an evader. Is that what you're suggesting? Sometimes. <laughs> we know it's hard to say. We take the work as it comes. We do the best we can to, to tackle the most egregious casework. And I say that for our side and, and look, it doesn't make sense for the limited resources that Darren and I have and our counterparts in compliance to look at folks that have a small liability or um, have an ability to pay that can pay through a system, perhaps. We do the best we can to tackle the most significant matters. How do you decide what's a significant matter? Like, how do you decide what cases to take you know, on? Part of that's experience. Like Darren said, you know, he's got revenue officers that know, I mean, to the tunes of several hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps, that's due on maybe an employer who doesn't pay over mm -hmm. your side of the employment tax that he took, he or she took out of your check, right? I mean, that can be thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're required to submit to the IRS on your behalf. So you have that social security benefit. And I would say that, you know, when you see dollars like that, at a minimum, you know, Darren's side would probably look at that and decide how to collect that. And then if there's, for example, that turns into a matter where maybe there's purposeful evasion, perhaps that money's going to pay that employers for a brand new house or a car, right? And their employers, employees aren't getting the benefit that they need because they've worked for two years, right? Uh, submitting their their uh, their money to him or her to submit it to the IRS. So it's experience-based, but today I would say, again, we have a somewhat control. We have a lot of data at our hands, at our fingertips. And, and we have great private partnerships that are there to help us you know, secure licenses for software products that help us dive into that data. 
and, and Darren has a lot of experience there. We do as well. That's why I would said earlier on, there's a lot of data-driven decisions that perhaps help some of this casework float to the top. And then you have to apply a common sense factor to that, right? Because that's just what we do and experience. And, and to show you just how, I mean, we've never had more data and analytics ever. I mean, it's never been a worse time to be a non-compliant person. Okay, so the Collection Inventory Delivery System, or CID, C-I-D-S, is a special section where we have people at the master's and PhD level who throughout the year build algorithms and filters, et cetera, to determine a particular taxpayer, business, individual, partnership, where should it be worked? Should it get a notice? What kind of notice? Should it be worked in the field? Should it be worked over the phone? They've gotten so good at what they've done, even during the pandemic, just in the past year, on secured returns, they've figured out how to pick more productive delinquent tax returns to pursue because pursuing all of them, right, is, is difficult. More than $600 per secured return extra year over year in 2021. And the revenue coming in up 13% last year, uh, excuse me, this year so far, 13.3% the revenue is up. The revenue officers, the amount of money collected in field collection is up 25%. ACS, the amount of revenue they're collecting is up 27%. A lot of that's because of the science that goes into the treatment. Where should this case be worked and when? And, and this is not a one-shot deal. They do this throughout the year. It's they're constant learning. Good. It's a constant learning process. You, you're constantly learning the behaviors around what is a valid what is maybe a tax return with an error, and then what is a tax return that might have other kind of behaviors on it that, that lead to some other action. Yeah, and then you're talking about these growth numbers, and, and, and you're obviously measuring it based on the amount of revenue produced, right? And this is what makes me so insane, and we talked about this in the podcast a lot in previous episodes with the IRS, is if it was a business, if I was any of these apps or a startup, and I have a division that is producing revenue at extremely amazing rates per employee, I would double down and double invest in that, that division. And like, we're completely opposite. It, and, it's, and David, it's a little you crazy. may have seen the news just uh, recently that the IRS brought in over $2 trillion through the first quarter of the year for the first time in history. So, I mean, we brought in $4 trillion just over that, I believe, last year. And through the first quarter, $2 trillion. Now, there's a gap though, the tax gap is another topic. Second quarter, sorry. We, t we talk about the tax gap on our show. And I, I wanted to know if you can quantify it for us, because there are widely diverging estimates as to, you know, how much revenue goes uncollected due to underreporting is the big one, or just, you know, non-payment, non-compliance, that sort of thing. But like, what can you tell us about that? I'll tell you that I cannot quantify it. I mean, we're focused on our work. We think that the work we do when we publicize the actions by people who are committing criminal acts, helps that tax gap close because people that need to know that are out there that are considering being involved in a scheme or a scam, that the penalty for willful failure to file, willful failure to, to report your income is jail. It's not a fine, it's jail. That's our role. And I think that whether it's controls or closes that gap, now, that's really our role. To quantify it is really difficult. And like you said, there's so many opinions out there as to what makes up that gap. But as Darren said, you know, a lot of um, remittances this year around taxes paid up to the trillions and, and record numbers. Whatever that is a result of, well, we're so doing something right. On the IRS website, irs.gov, I found data, or I found a, a statement here that says the average gross tax gap was estimated at $441 billion per year based on data from years 
2011, 2012, and 2013. But I can't find anything more recent. What did you say? How much was collected this year? Darren? Revenue? Tri- I how think many we're not done it's yet. In the second Darren. quarter, it's over $2 trillion, Over so. $2 trillion, as of the second quarter. But, you know, half a billion dollars or close to that, that's a lot. $2 trillion, that's like a quarter of, of what's been collected this year. So, I mean, that seems pretty substantial. There's a lot of revenue that's going uncollected. No, you're right. There's no doubt about it. For us to quantify it would be difficult from our view. Yeah. But we both work in the areas where we, we do our best to identify the, the highest level, most impactful levels of uh, non-compliance, whether it's uh, non-compliance or, in our case, uh, enforcement. So for a collection, most of the accounts that I work are legally perfected debts of the United States. Taxpayers filed voluntarily a tax return, whether it's a business or an individual, and they didn't pay it. So we know what that amount is, and that group I told you about that sorts the inventory and determines the right place to work it. The less sophisticated, less complex cases to secure those funds will work through our notice process or they're worked over the phone. Yeah. The more complex cases are worked out in the field. And I can assure you, you hear a lot about high income taxpayers and are we pursuing them? And the answer is yes, because whether you're categorized as a high risk taxpayer, we have high, medium and low risk cases in the field. Part of that calculation is how much money do you earn? What kind of assets do you have? And I can assure you, we have revenue officer compliance sweeps across the country. So until we have enough revenue officers to work every case, what we're doing is using geographic intelligence, mapping software to determine where our high-risk cases are and we don't have people. We no longer have brick and mortar and we visit those locations throughout the year, something called revenue officer compliance sweeps or ROCs. And this year we've been doing them on high-income delinquent filers or high-def sweeps, H-I-D-E-F. But this year we're going to be doing something on top of that, specifically doing a sweep on high wealth taxpayers that owe money. High wealth balance due sweep. So stay tuned for more on that. And and make the I'm sorry, uh, make no bones about it. Like uh, we also have information that comes in terms of the power of data, right? We have a lot of um, data that comes in from uh, other countries. We have FACTA data, which which you know goes to foreign asset reporting that's required. And so all this information comes in. We have really smart mathematicians in IRS that you know, formulate some of the algorithms that Darren's talking about that help us make kind of decisions that we need to, to make to just be better and more efficient. So, so Jim, your, your stuff's a little bit more black and white. It's a bad actor. Yep. The numbers add up. If they don't add up, they're going to jail. It's very black and white. So, Darren, but you, like, what's the compassion? So somebody's not paying for whatever reason. Maybe they just made poor personal finance decisions. They got in over their head belly up mortgage who knows right but they have a reason they're not paying like where's the compassion versus how much you're going to collect are you going to squeeze them if you declare bankruptcy can you get that wiped off like where how aggressive is the collection like they're not going to go to jail because they weren't a bad actor but obviously they owe the money how do you resolve that I, i would challenge your listeners to look at their local newspaper how often do you see an irs public notice of seizure because when we sell property we seize it's advertised in local papers how often do you see the IRS versus other government entities, local, seizing and selling property? I think you'll see that seizure is a last resort, not a first resort for us. And our employees, they're your neighbors. They live in your communities. They coach literally. They substitute teach and so on. They go to your places of worship. So they're part of your community. They do care. And if you looked at the raw data of how we resolve cases in collection, the vast majority of the cases are resolved with payment in full, voluntarily by the taxpayer. They establish a payment plan with us voluntarily, or we determine, you know what, 
you can't afford to pay us right now and keep a roof over your head. We call those necessary living expenses. I'm generalizing, but we make sure they have enough money, depending on where they live, to have transportation, to get to and from work, to have uh, housing and so forth, groceries, et cetera. And if we don't think they can afford to pay those expenses and their back taxes, we close that case as currently not collectible for a period of years and, or until they file a tax return, it demonstrates their income has increased to a level that now they can afford to start paying it back. But for other taxpayers, where taxpayers do have the means to pay on an installment plan or pay in full and they choose not to, uh, we use our enforcement tools to, to help convince them, you know, to modify their behavior. I mean, I try to tell the employees <laughs> on a regular basis. like the way you're phrasing this. We convince them to modify their behavior. It's beautiful. I just love the, the well, version. It, 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 and I meant that deliberately. I, I had a boss a long time ago who said it's important that our employees understand that they're not in the collection business. They're in the behavior modification business. We don't want people to go to jail. We don't want to seize their property. We want you to file your tax return on time and honestly report the taxes you owe and your income on that return and pay it when it's due. Or if you can't afford to, to reach out to us and make arrangements to pay it back. And our first engagement with any taxpayer, whether it's on the phone or in the field, is to find out what caused the delinquency and to convince them how to not cause that delinquency in the future. And if they comply, if they work with us amenably, there is no enforcement. One of the frustrations of practitioners who are trying to resolve notices that clients are receiving, you know, liens, all that stuff, is that the correspondence is is so backlogged at the IRS right now that you re respond in writing and the, the letter doesn't get open for three months, six months. And then the notices keep piling up and coming and it just compounds. We're so. doing all we can to help there. By we, I mean the Small Business Self-Employed Division. So that backlog where the mail comes in and returns are processed is not Gemini's shop. That's a wage and investment division. They're doing the very best they can with the limited number of people they have and they're hiring lots of people right now but they're still at backlog. They're getting caught up on it. We believe we'll be caught up by the end of the year. But to help, I've sent the Small Business Self-Employment Division's collection function, 980 employees just in the last couple of months over to help them so that's catch up with that backlog. Of your staff you've sent almost pushing. well i'll tell you this these are people who would ordinarily be handling paper processing and small business self-employed or answering the phones so about 310 of that 980 are the people that talk to you on the phone if you get a notice we've paused our notices and in, in collection so we did that at the end of january and early february because we don't want you to be calling us or you know you sent something that's caught in the backlog and we shouldn't have sent you the notice so we've turned off most of our notices in collection until we feel, you know, everything is in the right place. Now, now we are in 2022 and we're still communicating with the IRS by physical mail and fax and telephone. When are we going to be able to resolve these issues? So something that went live on December 11th, uh, robotic text chat with the taxpayers who were on irs.gov. So I think we'll get to a point where Americans all file electronically and they'll be on a computer. And chat is the way to help them answer questions without having to wait on hold on the phone. But just to give you an example, I mean, so we've had between 2017 when we started live chat and just in the last four months, we started robotic chat, artificial intelligence. Grand total, about 1.5 million chats have been received. We did something new that started on January the 3rd, and it's going to be really big next month in June. 
artificial intelligence that speaks in English and Spanish, and if you owe 50000 or less, it can go into your account, it'll authenticate you, knows who you are, and set up a payment plan for you. And close your case. If you want a transcript, it'll pull a transcript for you. The weight on hold will be zero. We're sure that this will work. The unauthenticated version of those bots is working right now, since December and January, to answer basic questions and information about how to make a one-time payment. Here's a number. 2.6 million phone calls answered by the bots since January 3rd. Compare that to 1.5 million chat sessions, whether live assisters or robotics, since November 2017. So right now the risk is phone calls. Tens of millions of taxpayers call us. And there's a smaller number that are online engaging with us in chat. So do I believe chat and digital is the answer for the future? Absolutely. But right now, we need to help people who are waiting on hold. And sometime around the middle of June, barring any problems that may arise, and with an IT build this ambitious, it's always possible, but we believe you will see by the middle or end of June, us answering millions of phone calls, millions more, in English and Spanish where taxpayers want to set up a payment plan or get a, tra or get a transcript, and the wait on hold will be zero. And, and is this something that the IRS is building themselves or divisions building themselves, or is this a partnership with private industry, both? It's a little bit of both. So um, the collection function in January of 2020 came up with a concept and spent a year building it, and all the requirements step by step by step. What would a bot have to do, whether it's chat or voice, to work a case this way? We uh, work with our IT partners in IRS. They are phenomenal. This build was supposed to take until 2024, and they moved up the timeline by two years because we know taxpayers are frightened when they get a letter that says, call us or we're gonna seize your bank account, and then we're answering two or three out of 10 phone calls. So IT moved it up by two years. They delivered ahead of schedule the unauthenticated bots, the bots that can't go into your private information. Those went live in December and January recently, and the authenticated version, instead of 2024, is planned to go live in the middle of June, 2022. You need to make sure uh, your PR department tells Congress people this because they're not aware of the progress that's being made. Oh, we, we gave live, <laughs> we gave demos of the bots to uh, hundreds of congressional staff, I think a month ago. But yeah, you mentioned private partners too. So our IT function works with a private vendor too, who's been instrumental, instrumental in helping us move that timeline up two years. They've been phenomenal as well. Well, I think that about wraps it up for our time today. I'm very thankful. Like, this is amazing to have, like, the real deal IRS people. Like, you guys are, I mean, based on your staff, you guys are 15% of the IRS. We've been speaking with Jim Robnett, Deputy Chief of Criminal Investigations, and Darren Guillaume, Deputy Commissioner of the Small Business Self-Employed Division at Collections. Thank you both so much for your time. Hey, hey thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. 